it. You know, my mum was absolutely brilliant with me. She just like really knuckled down and like got me got got me to a good standard with like you know reading and stuff like that. So I'm not massively affected by it, but like the but it's still not my world. You know what I mean? So I kind of realized that if I was going to succeed, I was going to have to be very very clever about like how I and how I identified opportunities. So I was constantly looking for ways for me to learn one thing that would like potentially open a door into something else. Because I was like, if I can get myself into a position where I'm sitting in front of somebody, then I can convince them to take a to take a chance on me, you know. And that's how I kind of did it. I went hopped from one thing to the other. And basically, I just assembled all these bizarre niches from all these different in- industries that eventually all came together. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of How Do You End Up Doing That? with me, Alex Jeffers. This podcast is all about speaking to people about jobs they've ended up doing and what got them into doing it, because usually if people have got a bit of a story to tell about how they ended up doing what they're currently doing if it's slightly out of the ordinary. This week's episode is with Tony Hassett, a specialist type of plasterer who works restoring old buildings and creating highly decorative mouldings in new ones too. He also works on film sets to create the backgrounds and scenes for some major Hollywood blockbuster films. I love talking with Tony about what he's worked on and hearing him go into detail about his passion for art and manufacturing. It's so fascinating to hear him talk about his experience of creating massive sculptures for people like Damien Hirst through crafting intricate and delicate models right the way to now he creates decorative features in some of the most famous and recognisable buildings in the UK. If you listen to this and you've got any comments or feedback, anything you'd like to say to me really, feel free to drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y-O-U dot com. And I'll take a look at any emails that come across and hopefully I can get back to you with some answers. So let's get stuck into our conversation with Tony. Cheers! Hello, Tony. How's it going, man? Yeah, good, mate. How are you keeping? Yeah, all good. All good. Busy. Busy, 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 you know. You know how it is. But uh, yeah, all good. So um, thanks for thanks for agreeing to come on the on the podcast to, uh, today. Um, yeah, do you want to give us a bit of a, I guess, what's, what's your job title at the moment? Like, what, what is your actual job? <laughs> so I'm uh, an ornamental... Uh, and historical uh, plasterer. Um, I do a lot of restoration work. And yeah, so uh, working in like um, like royal houses or um, like libraries, cinemas, anything restoration, any listed buildings, that kind of stuff. And it's a certain type of plastering you do, isn't it? It's not really... Yeah. Uh... It's, it's fi- fibrous. Fibrous, yeah. Fibrous plastering, yeah. Yeah, so it's split into a few things. So there's the fibrous plastering, which is like where you take like a canvas. It's, it's plaster of Paris that's reinforced with canvas and it's splashed into molds and that takes on all these different architectural uh, moldings and there's a lot of geometry involved in it and fitting. And that's one side of it. And then the other side of it, which is more the kind of like historical restoration side, is a uh, lime plastering, which is like a, an old uh, traditional uh, type of of plastering that um, that basically lasts for a very long time. Uh, I my only experience of lime is that we've got a massive bag of it in our utility room that seems to be lasting a very long time because nobody wants to take it off their hands. We had to buy some to do some not rendering mortar, um, like laying uh, oh, bricks. What is it? Mortar between bricks of the yeah, 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 pointing. Yeah, doing a bit of pointing, but we ended up with a twenty-five kilo bag of lime, which we've right. used about five kilos of, and now we oh, have okay. a twenty. Kilo. Oh, good stuff to have around, anyway. You know, <laughs> good for disposing bodies. I think. You said that, yeah. But yeah, good to good to have you on, Tony. I'm spoken to you. It's only too long. So yeah, let's um, I guess start right back at the beginning with uh, with school, uh, as I was seen to. So what what was school like for you? What did you what did you do? What were your what were your sort of interests back in back in the day? Um, well, school was a bit of a difficult one for me. I, I um, 
I never, I never really felt comfortable or happy at school. I was uh, one of the major problems was I was in an academic school with which didn't have any kind of like um, we shouldn't have. I so I didn't have any uh, like carpentry or metalwork or anything like that. I was studying yeah like geography and biology and all that kind of stuff. And I was a, I'm a much more like hands on type of person. Like you know I like I like making stuff and building things and it just didn't work for me. Um, and at the time. I think I had a lot of kind of curiosity about about the world and stuff like that. And when I was growing up in Limerick, there's just I didn't see a lot of stuff that I kind of like re- related to around me growing up. So I was always searching outside and, and trying to find stuff. I mean, in the years that's passed, like Limerick has really, really thrived creatively. Um, but at that time, I just felt maybe I was just unlucky that I didn't meet the people or whatever. But so but you were like a, you sort of stuck with it right the way through. Yeah, uh, I is it G- it's not GCSEs in Ireland is it's, it it's uh so it's a leaving cert so you okay. so like you've got like the junior cert you do when you're like 15 and then you have the leaving cert when you're like 17 18 I think it's still like that now but I don't know maybe it could have changed that's a long time ago now okay so your leaving cert is the same as a levels over in yes yeah, so you do that and then that you'd go to university after that or whatever oh, okay so what sort of subjects were you doing around about leaving leaving cert kind of time yeah so yeah that's the difference i think it's different over there so we did like eight or nine subjects Ah. right up until like the leaving cert is quite extensive okay Um, so i was doing like um biology uh geography history um kind of like the anoraki kind of nerdy stuff that was like the stuff that i got on with most was the kind of yeah that that type of thing but like you know there was a lot of let's say you know business and that so all that sort of stuff so i was i was waiting for school to end a lot of the time i mean i had like a 40 minute i had a 40 minute art class a week that was the closest thing that i felt that i had any kind of creative you know output or whatever at the time so i really struggled with it so there was no like art class you know art sort of art didn't form part of the leaving sir or anything yeah no it did it, it was a oh, part it was a subject of it but it was like you got one class a week or oh, one, okay. one maybe two like 30 40 minute classes you know so it was just it was a, I, I felt it was a slog yeah, yeah so what was uh what was kind of the plan then after you you've gone through got through school then you're leaving sir was the plan then to go into university or yeah well it was it was kind of i mean i always kind of had an eye on university but um yeah i mean i played it i played a lot of i played a lot of sport i played a lot of rugby and hurling when i was growing up so that was a big part of my life and that at that time that that was kind of like the outlet basically so where i had the outlet from all the frustration of 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 being at school and not really enjoying it the the outlet was sport this is where i kind of got my own kind of back you know what i mean if that makes sense yeah, 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 and two very, very physical sports, rugby and yeah. hurling. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that was it. I, I, I ended up breaking my neck when I was 19 playing rugby. Oh, man, that's... Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've broken all my fingers, I've broken my nose, my eye socket, but like you, the list is unbelievable, yeah. All through rugby? All through rugby growing up, yeah, yeah. Oh. My leg, my arm, all sorts of stuff, yeah. My sternum, <laughs> my teeth, uh, like... The weirdest thing about it now, looking back on it, was how much I just accepted it. It was like, it was the most like logical thing in the world to me. Looking back at it now, I just think it's demented. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, now that I'm like, now that I'm closing in, I'm 40 and I'm starting to feel it all like, you know, like, oh, maybe I should have like been less combative. So rugby, uh, sport, sport was your uh, creative outlet. Was yeah. uh, kind of pursuing a uh, like a rugby pro rugby career, sort of on the couch. Yeah, I mean, we were. It was like I played a good standard of it. I went to because what happened was I after after I broke my neck, I ended up going down to uh, New Zealand and I was playing down there. Uh, and while I was there, I met a guy who was like a pretty prominent uh, graffiti writer. He was a an Irish guy called Adam Corner. Uh, uh, Adam uh, Connor. He was very prominent in the Irish um, uh, graffiti scene, but he just happened to be in New Zealand while I was there traveling as well. And we spent a lot of time together working on uh, sketchbooks and stuff like that and breaking into train yards and and doing like uh, top to bottom, end to end uh, freight trains and lots of illegal graffiti at the time to get the the buzz. That was well. And the more time, because the more time I was down there, the like, was spending time with people that were like 
very creative. I felt that like I had less in common with the people I was playing rugby with. And that's when it was like re- when things really started to come into focus about about following like a kind of a creative path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've uh, kind of, yeah, come out of school, gone to, down to New Zealand to do rugby and ended up more in the creative side of things. Yeah, oh, definitely. It was like, it was meeting people who were like, you know, tattooists, graffiti writers, break dancers, people that were into um, DJing. It was hip hop. It was like, basically it was like hip hop was something that, yeah, kind of gave me an outlet and, and gave me a way to learn from people that were older than me. That was like, that's one thing that's great about hip hop. This is great mentorship. People challenge you to do a lot, you know, to, to get better. I was speaking to Captain the other week um, oh, about yeah. hip hop. Shout out, Captain. <laughs> uh, and he was saying, uh, he was kind of talking through his, his background in hip hop, uh, uh, kind of growing up and how it, you know, it inspired a lot of what he did and the work that he was doing. So it came up a surprising way with the work he was doing through hip hop. He found really inspirational working with kids, teaching them how to do raps and like bringing yeah, them into that sort of culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind huge, of huge, huge culture within hip hop is to each one, teach one. I, do, I wish I like, I had no idea about it. I'd like, I like it. I like a bit of hip hop, but I'm yeah, just, yeah, I yeah. wouldn't say I'm an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what you got uh, captain for, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And you know, he's very much the expert. So, uh, yeah, you've, uh, New Zealand, um, and then, Kind of get more in with the the arts crowd while you're over there. Then do you car do you go straight back to Limerick? I came after after New Zealand. I I basically I found out about a, an art school in Camarthen, uh, and they had a, they had a great name for sculpture. Yeah, I, I I ended up there. They had like they had, they were very very open to leaving you. They gave you a lot of freedom and like allowed you to kind of dictate the the path that you wanted to take with, with your ideas and your course. And it was, it was a really great place. And I, I, at that point I was still, I was still playing rugby and stuff like that, but the art was definitely taken over. Uh, and I met some, met some really good people down there, finished out the degree course and all that. From, from there, what happened was one of the guys, one of the guys that was at the, the, that I was at uni with, he ended up getting a job at a, a place called Pangolin Fine Art Foundry, uh, uh, Pangolin Editions. And and that's a that's a bronze foundry in Stroud, and they do large scale international sculpture. So the, you're talking about artists like uh, Damien Hurst and Mark Quinn and Gormley and like all these like huge, like huge huge international artists. And but then they'd also have lots of kind of like really interesting independent kind of like lesser lesser known sculptors and stuff like that coming through the coming through the foundry as well. So one day I was working at the time I was working in a, a restaurant in Cardiff. A friend of mine sent me just like popped up on my phone i was i was constantly trying to do drawing and like i was constantly trying to put myself out there creatively or whatever but i got a photograph on my phone of uh, a pegasus this amazing bronze pegasus with all these these wings like coming off it and it, it was like stripped on one side of its skin like a horse does all that kind of stuff you know with exposed muscle, muscle tissue and it just blew my mind and i was like what is that like and how do i get in it like then i like uh i bit like my, my mate he, he was like set me up with um an interview with these people went down there absolutely dressed to the nines like completely overdressed for an interview like this i had like a three-piece suit with like a long like full-length coat like a patent shoes the whole lot i looked as if i absolutely knew what i was doing and when i turned up i was so nervous when i was talking to this woman called Claude koenig who uh, she was the the wife of uh, Runway Kingdon, who was he was actually related to Eisenbard Kingdon Brunel, yeah, direct uh, direct uh, descendant. Um, so I mean, it doesn't make you a genius, but it doesn't hurt, right? Where he was, where he was very much uh, as close as I've come to a genius, and he was a really fascinating man. Well, I was chatting to to Claude, and I just burst into like first and foremost, she asked me what my name was, and I made this weird like uh, noise because I was so nervous <laughs> and she was like, look, just calm down and just explain what you do. Like, you know, right. Well, so I went on to this huge rant about passion and creativity and art and all this sort of stuff. And I was ranting and ranting and ranting and she was sitting there. And after I finally stopped, she went, uh, okay, but like, but like, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, so I, I, um, 
I showed her because yeah, well, while I was at the um, university in, in Camarden, I studied ceramics, so I did a lot of sculptural ceramics, a lot of figurative illustration, printmaking. I was doing all sorts. I got like a real, a real wide variety of uh, of art while I was there. So I showed her all this, and she was like, "Okay." She was like, "Well, you can do some uh, bits of model making, mold making with like uh, celastic rubbers and stuff like that," because. Well, at the foundry, they do the thing called a, it's it's a lost wax technique, right? So you'll have you'll have a sculpture. They'll let's say you mix up a a two part uh, silicon uh, rubber, paint it over it, build it up to a certain thickness, um, reinforce it with like a, like like a fibrous material, and then you make like a plaster case, plaster fiberglass case, right? At which point you open the mold when it's all cured and whatever, and you've got two parts of it, or multiple parts can be, you know, can be infinite mm-hmm. multiple parts. But usually you'll have like, you know, anywhere between two and four, maybe six parts of it. Okay. You can paint uh, uh, melted wax into the mold. That in turn builds up a, a thickness. You then put the mold back together and you fill the inside of the hollow with like a, like a, a core. It's like a, a material of... Um, like plaster and brick dust and stuff like that and you take the mold apart build what's called a, an investment mold at this point which is another case around around this this this, this the sculpture now is like a, looks like a, just a wax an identical wax copy of the of the sculpture you then encase that in a further mold and you heat it up so the wax melts out and where the mac the wax has melted out there's now a negative a three-dimensional negative area of of where the 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 original wax work would be and that's where you pour your bronze in that then fills up and then what you do is you smash away the the mold so you destroy the mold and then you pull out your your piece of bronze at which point it's taken away and metal worked and at some point uh you know reassembled and then it goes through a patination process where you can apply lots of different colors and stuff like that and then you've got your sculpture. So that's one that's one side of the, the mold making process. The other one was sand molding. So that's for bigger sculptures. So you you would take your, your sculpture, you would decide on your design of your mold. Then you would really painstakingly compact sand into these like little blocks all around the sand mixed with silica. Compact you compact all that sand into into different blocks um, because it's important to take out undercuts, right? It's it's all technical mold making stuff. This, but basically, I'm trying to think of how to simplify it. So, you compact all this sand around this sculpture, take the mold apart, put it back together again, turn it upside down, do the opposite side of it, put it back together again, and then what you do is you melt a huge amount of bronze. So you're talking doing bronze pours of like over a ton, and then you're working in a team of other foundrymen. And what would happen is this huge furnace would like lift up the crucible, this massive crucible. It comes up in these hydraulic arms. And it's one of the most awesome sights I've ever seen in my life, you know, <laughs> with this huge like crucible full of like uh, with a graphite crucible and this huge hydraulic machine lifts up. It, all, it looks like the sun is rising, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you're obviously in fire retardant um, foundry uh, protective clothing with like the big helmets and the visors and all this sort of stuff. And you've got like guys like scraping out like the 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 slag, which is like the impurities of the molten bronze, and it, it all pours into this into this crucible that's attached to a crane. And then basically, you have to really trust the guy who's piloting that that that, that crane because he's sending uh, a, you know a pot of molten bronze from one side of like a, a huge um, foundry to the other while you're standing on top of these massive molds. Some of these molds are like 20 tons, the sand are like 20 tons. So you're using these huge 20 tons. Sometimes you're using two 20 ton cranes in conjunction with each other just to flip these things over. So the entire building is creaking <laughs> and like, you know, because of the, the size of these things. At which point you're standing on top of these massive molds and that part of molten bronze comes towards you, you and one of your partner, your partners take control of the pot. And you've got like, on one side of it, you've got like a steadying handle on the other. You've got this massive, like a, uh, like a wheel and, uh, you've got a support team around you who have wheelbarrows full of sand that they are going to throw on you if you catch fire. <laughs> right. So, and you do, you catch fire. Cause what? You do. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're catching fire. So that's your, like, so when you're, because you have to be totally committed to the poor. So you've got this 
you've got this like huge kind of like um, almost like a funnel on the top of the mold, right? And you need to dump the bronze into the mold, right? But if you're hesitant, uh, you can end up trapping air, right? If the if the flow of bronze into the mold isn't consistent, mm. you can end up having like pro- basically cause problems. And because each each of those molds have are single use and they can take months and months and months to make, so you've got one shot. You gotta get it right, <laughs> and it, when it goes wrong, it's heart, It can be really, really heartbreaking. Yeah, I can imagine. How how often did it go wrong? It can it can go wrong quite a bit because there's so many different factors. Like you know, there's like so one of the things that can happen with the, the silicon that's mixed with the sand when it's compacted, it needs to be gassed off with CO two in order to cause a chemical reaction, which turns it almost like a stone. You know, but depending on weather conditions, the silica can flow into the sand at varying levels. So you get some of the sand, which is very friable. Some of it then is almost like treacle. That's when things go really wrong and that's a problem. But anyway, when you're at the pore, so you're dumping it in and what happens is this kind of like funnel at the top of the mold fills up to the brink. And then at that point, then you're kind of like balancing the balancing the crucible to kind of keep the, the funnel full, but obviously without it spilling over. And like metal at that at that heat, it looks like the way water moves, but as if you've pressed the fast forward button, it, it, it's so hot, it, it moves, it's obviously a liquid, but it moves very rapidly and it's very dynamic. So it's when it splashes, it splashes everywhere. So that's splashing up on your clothing, but you're obviously so focused on what you're doing, like, you don't really notice, but you're catching fire. But you can feel your friends like launching sand at you to, to basically keep the thing under control. And and at which point, this is where this is where you have to have a bit of like a, a this is where the, the kind of craft of it is really crucial because if you're dumping that amount of hot molten bronze into a confined space, you've got what's called a runner, which is like the in tube. And you've got risers, which are the out tubes, because the, the bronze goes in, fills up. And you've got these tubes that are called risers that allow all the, the air, the hot air, to leave the mold. And then what happens is the, the bronze fills up where your sculpture is inside, and it rises up these little tubes. And when it pours out onto the top of the mold, that's how you know it's full. But if you don't have enough risers for how much bronze you're putting in there basically what can happen is the whole thing can explode it can lift off the you're talking like tons of material getting lifted off the ground in like quite a big explosion wow. and like and that happens that like i've seen you know because these are guys that are like you know arch fettlers you know these are like <laughs> you know these, these these aren't like you know like um engineers that like uh are, like do hydrodynamic analysis and all this stuff these are people that are re- really just real um artisan kind of craftsman so they'll that's just mad like because like, as you were saying all that i was thinking these guys have got to have kind of like there's got to be engineers working there as well to sort of yeah, they're local lads a lot of them were just local lads that had no background in art or anything like that that were all from around the gloucester area really super talented guys like that just like they saw it as more like uh as a trade you know oh, okay it had that kind of so it, that was more like that like that you're you're better off almost having that mindset than having an artistic mindset in a foundry like that because it can be you can have conflicting kind of motives going on but but the one thing i will say is you learn a lot in there yeah i can imagine i can imagine you would because if you think well because a lot of the stuff you were doing you weren't you were creating art with other people for for other people for, for other people so yeah so we they what would happen was they would come in with like sometimes with an idea sometimes with a finished sculpture we'd take we were doing things like live casting we were doing all so i mean i'm not even sure i could tell you some of the stuff that we we've molded like but a lot of very strange and wild and wonderful animals and skeletons and like loads and loads of pretty bizarre stuff really okay. Um, and then it's all assembled and, 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 you know, then the, then the, the foundry kicks into gear and like actually makes the piece of sculpture. Cause yeah, if you're, if you're kind of doing that for, as an artist, I suppose you want to, you would want to put your own stamp on that and put your own. Yeah. Well, that's the, well, you have to get that out of your head. Yeah. You, 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 you've got it like, you're there to facilitate other artists works. So you're, you're, you basically, you have to have the mindset that you're uh, an artisan. Okay. You know, yeah. like it's more of an artisan than a, than an artist. I mean, there's the reason that I was so interested in it. Was, I was like, because I knew how labor intensive it was mm. to make sculpture on that level. And I was like, 
one of the things I'd run into time and time again when I was in the education system was that like people had like rough ideas of how to do stuff, but there's nothing like doing the real technical side of of these trades for like eight to ten hours a day. Yeah. For years, like you can't like to get to the upper echelons of it to really, really develop like super finesse um, is something that I'm still trying chasing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you think like I hopefully one day I get there, but like it takes a lot of that. And and like unless you're some kind of millionaire, you ain't going to be playing around with bronze. So it was a way of hijacking other people's know how and experience, basically. Yeah, yeah, I guess you need to get that kind of hands on experience that stuff that you can't be taught, you really have to learn. And uh, yeah, so I mean, we give it a go myself and uh, Ryan Turner, shout out Ryan Turner. Uh, we uh, we made a furnace once in our shed and maybe blew ourselves up. We were pouring molten aluminium and flip flops and drinking cider. <laughs> we made, yeah, we made a furnace out of some gas burners and the the thing that they cracked it on the second day. We found out that uh, a stainless steel cocktail shaker was for, for like one pound from uh, from a reputable supermarket. Right. Uh, <laughs> was the perfect thing to uh, to melt aluminium in. You can, you can haphazardly go at it like that. Working on real super high and stuff like that was, you know, it developed a lot. Yeah, yeah, um, I can imagine. The, the, just the level of skill, the, da- the danger, like the, the danger that goes into it, the, the, the level of skill and craftsmanship and knowing that you need to have that team around you. That's something that you can't get. You can't get anywhere yeah. else. See, there's no no exactly, and you got to get used to each other. But like, what what one thing that I loved about the bronze pouring was just like, it just felt like time slowed down, and and I, and in a way, it was great because like within the foundry, there was like you know politics here and there and stuff like that, you know. But the sandcasters were kind of like left to their own devices because it's such a mental thing that not very few people would, not very many people would do it, and like. Also, it's a very, very physical thing. So you're using like pneumatic, like jackhammers, and, okay. like you know, you're pulling things apart and smashing things with sledgehammers, and it's like there's a lot, there's a lot going on. So they were kind of like left to rule their own. It was like, they called it the the People's Republic of Sandcasting. It was great. <laughs> They're like pirates. They're brilliant. They're really, really interesting characters. Sounds like a, a yeah, <laughs> especially it was great. The, it was great. The Stroud. Lost the kind of way. There's uh, there's a lot of kind of crazy, oh. crazy fellas up there. A lot of ley lines down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of nice views and ley lines, mm. and uh, not very many police in comparison, <laughs> in comparison to the size of the uh, area. But anyway, yeah. but yeah, and then things took a twist there because I I I wanted to develop. That was the thing that, like you know, my ambitions didn't marry up with the with the foundry because I, I, I definitely they wanted me to, to pick one department and stay in that department and you know become like a basically a useful employee, okay. uh, <laughs> long term employee to the company, whereas I I still wanted to go out and learn as much as I could that I could feed back into myself and I was working with an amazing uh, equestrian a specialist equestrian sculptor Georgie Welsh. She's really worked checking out she's does amazing sculpture she said to me she was like uh she put me to one side and she was like look she said um saplings don't grow in the shade of uh of bigger trees she was like you are a sapling and she said pangolin is a, a very big tree yeah. so she was like if you're not gonna you know like kind of toe the line or not toe the line or whatever but like kind of you know up and down she was like you should find out what this thing called fibrous plastering is i had no idea what it was but I was like, okay. So then I googled it. I googled that. Different things transpired. I ended up leaving the foundry for f- every year for five years. I applied for Hales and Howe in Bristol. They're a, they're a fibrous plastering firm in Bristol. They're like they've been all over the world. They're like one of the most respected companies in the in the world for fibrous plastering. But I would get like walked around the studio or whatever, but never ended up getting a job. So this went on like this went on all the time. And what happened was I ended up getting a job as a model maker. So then I was, I was working in um, vacuum casting and like um, light engineering. And what sort of models uh, were they? What, what kind of? So it was like I was working in a company called Amalgam in Bristol, but we were making like, um, you know, prototypes. Uh, sometimes it was like stuff for TV. 
stuff for advertising, uh, stuff for the the fire brigade. Like I think there was some bits of military stuff here and there. Then there was uh, they made scale models of of like boats and all sorts of stuff like that. So basically, they were. There were some absolute geniuses in that place. There was like some really, really clever people. So yeah, I worked with them for a few years, but it wasn't really my thing. Like I learned a lot from it, but it wasn't where my heart was at. And I was, I was kind of constantly banging down the door to, to try and get into Hales and How. And there was basically anybody that kind of passes through Bristol as a maker at some points will, will come across like Cod Stakes, and Cod Stakes are another model making company. They they were involved with stuff with Ardman. And they do kind of like large scale, like sculptural model making and stuff like that. And eventually I ended up getting like a, a few weeks work with them. And I'm sitting down, we're making these like, uh, these kind of Ferrari simulator, 3D simulator things that were being sent out to Dubai. And I was like, we were like sanding these things down, getting them ready for spray paint. And I just started chatting to this guy who was like one of the head, one of the head makers there. Um, a guy called uh, Ollie Hales. Uh, and while we were chatting, he was like, look, he said, you seem to be a maker and you're into this, that and the other. He was like, but what would you, what would you really like to do? And I said, uh, I'd like to be a fibrous plasterer. And he just looked at me like I had two heads, you know? <laughs> and I was like, what? And he went, who told you to say that? And I was like, uh, no one. I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, oh yeah. He was like, what company would you like to work for then? And I was like, I'd like to work for Hales and Howe. I was like, they're amazing. I've seen all their stuff. And he burst out laughing. He was like, fuck off. He was like, who put he said, who put you up to this? He was like, what's going on, you know? I said, mate, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he goes, well, he's like, my name is Ollie Hales. He was like, you're talking about my dad. <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> he was, I was like completely blown away by it. And he was like, uh, he was like, you've been applying for five years. And I said, yeah. And I said, was well, it really hard to get in? He's like, no. He was like, they just probably didn't know what to do with you. So he rang, he, he, he rang him back up and, and then I got a chance to go in there. But I nearly fucked it up for myself, to be honest, because uh, I ended up having a row with Ali before he put the word into me. But oh. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just a, it was a, a, a workshop principle thing. But uh it was about the tidiness in the workshop and whose whose role it was to clean things up. But I remember he, he, he infuriated me. But like, yeah, uh, I remember walking away and I was like, why couldn't I just keep my mouth shut? I was like, I've nicely this up, but thankfully he didn't. He put a word into me. And then yeah, I went in with Hales and Howe, and with them I just like traveled basically the length and breadth of the country, over to Ireland and all over the place, like uh, going to every single theater that you can imagine. Um, from the old Vic, the Royal Opera House, uh, the Royal Albert Hall, the Winter Gardens in, in Blackpool, up to Glasgow. There's just this constant rolling adventure of all these bizarre places. and Amazing. Like, that's yeah. Just, just, yeah, like such a, I guess, kind of like quite a leap, but kind of taking it back a bit. So you, you've gone from making these massive bronze statues and like sand casting and things like that right down to yeah. intricate tiny models model making for a bit like yeah. and then to go from that to then you know just it just like what yeah was there a thing that kind of made you think i've done with the the, the sand you know I've, I've done with the the casting i want to work for hells and how but model yeah. like what was it that got you thinking i'll do the models in the in, in well, the well basically what it was at the time i was a i'm a big believer in identifying transferable skills okay like so so like i'm dyslexic and uh i can read and write to a good standard and all that sort of stuff you know my mom was absolutely brilliant with me she just like really knuckled down and like got me got, got me to a good standard of like you know reading and stuff like that. so i'm not massively affected by it but like the but it's still not my world you know what I mean so I kind of realized that if I was going to succeed I was going to have to be very very clever about like how I and how I identified opportunities so I was constantly looking for ways for me to learn one thing that would like potentially open a door into something else because I was like if I can get myself into a position where I'm sitting in front of somebody then I can convince them to take a to take a chance on me you know and that's how I kind of did it. I went hop from one thing to the other. And basically, I just assembled all these bizarre niches from all these different in industries that eventually all came together. 
what is like uh well, you know when you're working for for hills and how what was you know the kind of what was your average week looked like is it uh is it was there an average <laughs> I, week i know there was never it, so this was the thing it was you were constantly you were constantly having to sharpen your wits because like i could turn up like you know normally you'd got kind of know maybe the week before where you were going to go but you could offer you could get a phone call and go oh there's been a ceiling collapse in the theater in edinburgh you gotta go now like we need you to go now so you'd head straight up there and like you'd try and make the place safe and and you know start the kind of process of surveying the ceiling and reporting back what needs doing and all this sort of stuff and then over time you know you'd go up there with like sometimes you'd have more and more extensive teams you could be working on a project for a day sometimes you could be working on a project for months and months and months you know so it was constantly changing you were always living out of a so i'd be away from monday to friday every week and then i'd come back to bristol and have my weekends in bristol and then i'd be gone again on the monday so yeah and i could be anywhere you know so i know every back back alley in Britain at this point like, <laughs> if, every pub and back alley in Chancer in the UK I probably rub shoulders with at some point every regional really arts centre across the land yeah 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 exactly and like places like that but then like stately homes oh okay you're just, you're just meeting a bizarre mix of people yeah yeah because I guess the because the sort of stuff you're doing you know it's not it's not regular plaster it's like moulding and real intricate designed yeah, highly decorative yeah. molding yeah yeah lots of kind of like you know domes and vaults and cornices moldings like some half of it is like trying to make sure that the stuff that's there doesn't collapse mm -hmm. and some of it has collapsed and then making it putting it back so it looks identical to the way it was before and yeah how does that something... kind of work like if if you get there part of the ceilings collapse and you've got this really intricate yeah. highly decorative design that was running across the whole of the ceiling who then yeah. is it then your responsibility to sort of redesign that or to well what it would be is you'd have so in some cases depending on like how important a piece of uh historical architecture would be let's say the whole thing hit the ground yeah they would the whole thing came down what they do is they they take they collect they painstakingly pick up all the different pieces and label them all and basically reassemble the the sections of the ceiling uh like a giant jigsaw in the in the workshop at which point you'd model it all back up in plaster and then you'd make molds so it was all with the, the mold making was the thing that allowed me to jump from one uh, area to the other so then you'd make these molds and then you'd recast them in in plaster and then you'd reassemble the whole ceiling basically that's that's like but that's like fibrous plaster and restoration work but you can also obviously have brand new stuff you know so with the with the brand new stuff is that you kind of designing the the, the patterns that go into that yeah i mean it would be you so a lot of it would be quite traditional so there's like there would be you know there's like you you've the like architectural orders and stuff like that classical architectural orders you have, have all the columns and all that sort of stuff there's, there's like strict ratios and, and laws about how how certain things look from different periods these well-established uh, companies would have stock from hundreds and hundreds of different manor houses wherever even even just in like you know terrace houses whatever wherever there's victorian uh edwardian kind of stuff or whatever they would have catalogs of all those profiles and molds of you know all these period features you know that can be made new even though the original mold might have been taken like 100 200 years before so yeah and they keep producing these things or they can be modeled up in clay and made from scratch yeah, so it's it's really really varied. It's got a lot of lot of cross section of different skills that all. Yeah, it sounds it sounds yeah proper combination of skills that you have built up over time. So you worked you worked for this yeah. company. How long uh, how long were you working for them? Oh, I can't remember. I was with them maybe a few years. I was I was um yeah a few years. I think two or three years. Okay. I think with them. But what happened was it wasn't enough for me to be a fibrous plasterer. I wanted to be, I wanted to also do lime plastering because, because certain periods, right? They were, the older buildings are predominantly made in lime, right? Most of that stuff is made in situ, right? So it's, they call it running in situ. So they'll be running cornice in situ. They'll be, but they'll cut a profile out of tin uh, and they'll make up these running rails 
and they'll basically pile up the the plaster in front of this tin profile and they'll pull it through leaving behind the cornice in situ fibrous plastering is more modern kind of system and what that was was they would actually make that in the workshop and then transfer it and fit it at site but i wanted to have the full range i wanted to be well versed i didn't want to just be, be niche that that's always been my thing i've always wanted to know as much as i can so i wanted to you know spread out so i ended up leaving that company because i wanted to learn another uh, branch of plastering and that was on another with another team of guys that we ended up doing a big restoration job in Bybury court so that that, that that allowed me to develop my lime plastering skills um with a, a really you know really good crew of guys francis stacy he's a, a good lime plaster he taught me a lot and then from there i kind of had enough of a cross section to then just kind of like go out on my to really go out on my own and basically become a bit of a soldier of fortune and kind of move between all the different restoration companies and all the different projects that I wanted to that give me the flexibility I needed. So with that sort of level of uh, having having the, the sort of the very broad but niche kind of experience in both those exactly. two areas of plastering, you go freelance. How like how do you find how do you find jobs off the back of that? Is it just through contacts that you've made over the years? Yeah, oh, that is a huge thing. That is an absolute huge thing. It's like having, I'm very, very lucky to have met some very loyal, just just really good mates through it, you know, like that, like really look out for each other. Because you, you're spending so much time, like when you're in that world, you know, traveling and away from home, you almost become like almost like a second family to each other. If not a first family in some ways, you see, you know, you see each other for more than your own families for it for sometimes that network is very very strong because a lot of it goes on okay. word of mouth who your your reputation is very very important in it but do 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 anyone does anyone ever approach you kind of that you haven't spoken to to sort of like say oh we've yeah yeah that happens too so like you you'll you'll have an element of that or there's like lots of different like restoration companies all like all mm-hmm. over the country and basically what I'd do is I'd reach out to all of those companies, send through my CV, bring them up, explain who I am, talk to them about what potential projects they've got, what, what like, you know, coming in, what, what, how long the time period is, what's expected, budget, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, all depending on, on, on what's going on, I might take that job or else like a friend of mine might ring me and tell me about a job that he's been working on because it's a small world. You get to know each other, even if you haven't been directly in contact with each other you you know with with the internet and instagram and facebook and stuff like that you're aware of each other's work at the very least you know there's a lot there must be a lot of that people sharing the work that they've done because it's so niche and unique that there must be a big yeah i guess not not big instagram community but you'd be surprised there's quite quite, yeah there's quite yeah there's quite yeah there's because people are connected through it all over the world you know and you've got like you know different like japanese plastering and you've got like venetian plastering it's such it's such an ancient thing and it's so broad that you could spend your entire life studying it and you'll never know it all never like there was a guy i met he was amazing john hayes he was the wildest man of like I, th- I think I've ever worked with. I was just completely amazed by how effortless he made all of it look. And I said to him, I was like, I was like, wow, man. I was like, you really, you really know your stuff. And he was like, me, mate? Nah. He's like, I don't know anything. And I was like, okay. I was like, that's clearly not the case, but I see where you're coming from. And then he goes, uh, let me tell you a little story. He was like, once he was like, I was like you. And I was looking at somebody who was absolutely amazing. And I told him that they were incredibly amazing. And they said, no, they weren't. And he said, he worked with this guy for years and years and years until he came to his retirement. And then on the last day, as he was walking out of the job, the old boy went, now I know everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that kind of, just like those kind of characters. You know? it's, all, it's like, it's all lots of working class men and it's an unbroken line of information that goes back hundreds of years okay yeah and really technical stuff that's made with really really simple and really practical tools right yeah of course because it's not you know i guess the tools like if you look at like i've been doing quite a lot of woodwork around the house at the moment and yeah. if you you know the tools that would have been used in woodworking projects back when a lot of this house was built were yeah. pencils yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. And now we're, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, and yeah. I can buy a different electric saw for yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah, 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 I yeah. need to do in this house. And um, But those, uh, you know, back in the old days, it would have just been saws. And with yeah. plastering, 
like we've had people around the house to do just you know basic skimming of the walls and yeah, it's like yeah. the tools that they are using uh, you yeah. know maybe they're using an electric mixer now rather than yeah yeah, it by hand. Hand tools. yeah but but the, the the actual application of it on the walls and the the shaping yeah. of it is still exactly the same tools yeah yeah it's all done to scale it's done, so you've got like basically you've got some water and you've got some powder mm. and you've got a, a trowel and then there's after that skill you know yeah do you see that you find that there's a lot of it being passed down like generation to generation so absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it's um definitely that's like i'm on a job in, at the minute in central london and i'm lucky enough to be working alongside a, a master plaster like a really amazing guy and there's like he's like in his 60s his mate is in his 60s there's like you know us there's a group of us in around our mid-30s um then you'll, you'll often have like an apprentice who's in these early 20s or whatever. So there's this brilliant like passing of skills in the trade, but also, uh, you know, philosophy and like, you know, like uh, outlooks on life and, you know, kind of mentorship. And it's it's just it's one of the things that I really feel grateful for is that I get that, that I have the connection to these men from older generations that we have this shared passion for what we do. You know, we pro- I probably would have never met those people, like, you know what I mean? And not have access to their their, their life's experience, you know? That's, yeah, it's just amazing. Are there any big projects that you're working on at the moment that you can talk about? Or Yeah, I'm, I'm working. It's like I'm working in uh, central London. It's it's like this huge, it's this massive building. It's like a skyscraper kind of building uh, near Liverpool Street Station. But bizarrely, like, one section of the the building is like a listed building. So you've got this huge glass skyscraper and out the side of it is sticking this like grade two listed building. Uh, and we're completely restoring all the fibrous plaster work in the ground floor. So it's all these massive beam cases and floral motifs and uh, columns and capitals and all that sort of stuff. So uh, what's... Um... I guess what, what like is there anything anything coming up any any big projects that coming up or anything yeah, yeah. so w- w- one thing I, I didn't get onto yet was so as a result of learning these skills in fibrous plastering what most most people don't realize is but most film sets that you see they're all made in plaster it's all plaster yeah so like when you see those like huge sprawling cliff faces and you see those castles and stuff like that in game of thrones or Aquaman, all these kind of things, right? That's majority of that stuff is plaster. So the studios need fibrous plasters to basically build their sets. As a result of being a fibrous plaster, I ended up then becoming a film plaster. Okay. So for the last, yeah, for the last three years or so, I've been working in like Warner Brothers and Pinewood and all these different places, building all these big movie sets and stuff like that. Um. But it's all those fibrous plasters. So they have it, they call it the inside and the outside. So the inside is when you're in the films, the outside is when you're out and about, basically. But it's all the same skills and all the same connection. The pe- people are all connected through the same way, you know? Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that with the, the plastering side of things. I remember, oh, did you, did you watch Stranger Things? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I remember seeing a thing about that where the, the, the upside down for Stranger Things is actually all made up from pulled noodles on black spray paint. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Ah. So, yeah, you'd have, so you've got different departments within the film industry. Then you'll have, you'll have like your uh, scenic painters. Yeah. You'll have uh, plasters, um, model makers. Then you'll have the greens, which are the people that are over all the like vegetation and plant life and stuff like that. Special effects. So you've got all these different uh, departments of, uh, artisans in the construction side of of the the film industry um that would build these like huge sprawling some of the sets are just enormous like absolutely huge it was good for the last three years or whatever like we did um like aquaman manola holmes too there was like loads of all these films we did over last year ghostbusters we did all these like these great things but then what happened was the strike came I don't know if you know about that. So there's the actor strike came and it yeah. shut down the industry for well, it hasn't fully recovered yet. 
So I even the strike, no, because even though the strike has ended before Christmas, the actual production of uh, has slowed right down. So I think they're probably waiting until the new tax year or whatever to before things will really kick back into gear again. So yeah, so just been back on the outside. That's why I'm back out now uh, doing uh, the more heritage kind of stuff at the minute. Yeah, I suppose the the, the actor strike is that it was kind of um, you know people kind of saw it as oh the actors is, actors are striking and the writers are striking, but there's such like you always hear about it but there's such a network of people uh, that are involved yeah. in the production of films that you don't re- like realize or don't it's recognize crazy kick right down to like you know you got costume makeup like catering yeah like vehicle rental like it's like it the list is just absurd it's this huge machine basically that just completely ground to a halt prop houses all those people so all those people really suffered for like so one of the things that was lucky because i've got the you know the trade is while the industry was down i you know went back into my my normal trade uh, but there was people out there that are really reliant on the film industry mm-hmm. uh, and they've really suffered you know we've all suffered but like they've in particular some of those people really really suffered you know? i guess a lot of your work slowed right down during covid as well like the pandemic must have well i mean that was for me i ended up working the whole way through oh, okay I, I, didn't, I didn't stop at all because what happened was because i was working in uh like a, such a mass it was like a massive private mansion there was i didn't have to worry about like um contaminating meeting people so we were working in like you know separate parts of the house and stuff like that so we were basically able to to work the, the whole way through it but yeah it definitely affected other lots of other people like you know some of my mates were off obviously for months and stuff like that but i was lucky enough that i had a project that carried me through it so i spoke to a few people now you know the the like i, I was busy all the way through covid uh, just by the very nature of doing web work and suddenly everything moved online into websites and I was busier than I've ever been uh, yeah. throughout the whole of COVID because my work could all be done from my back bedroom and everybody wanted me more than ever to make sure that their website stayed live. Uh, yeah, exactly. For a lot of, yeah, for so many people, it was just horrific. Yeah, well, this is the thing that's really bad about this is because we obviously had COVID that affected the industry. Then mm. there was like some re- re- restructuring that went on behind the scenes at like Warner Brothers and stuff that had slowed things down last year. Now the strike has come and it's just like, it's... It's just, yeah, it just feels very, very hard to kind of, kind of like get a foothold at the minute, you know, but, but it will, it will, it will change and it's going to be very intense when it does come back, you know, so. Is it just sort of working in London then, the kind of set making and stuff like that? Or was uh, you no, being called up? I, was, I was up in Scotland. Um, yeah, I was up in Scotland. Uh, that was brilliant. <laughs> I was up working on a film. It never came out. It was Batgirl. Uh, I was on oh. that up there, but yeah, it was like uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> it never came out. But um, we were up there for I think three or four months. But yeah, it can be anywhere, you know. Like, but the, predominantly, it is around London, or usually around that M twenty five band around yeah. the, all the studios around there. Basically, so you're never getting flown over to the California or I haven't been flown out to California yet. But I mean, the guys like Mason of mine were like, you know, um, in Malta, we're working on Gladiator two and. They, they do all so like people go all sorts of places they end up in japan doing like harry potter museums all, all sorts of crazy stuff it's like a yeah you can end up going some places with it all right yeah because i suppose the is it is it a british like uh fibrous fasting is it, is it uh british no it would have been i mean it, we're, we're lucky because we've got so many really really good fibrous plasters here but italian really uh italian uh french but uh, you know german and the kind of royal houses and stuff like that is uh is where a lot of that would have come around but they've got but in the uk in particular you've got an amazing history and like uh so many like top top craftspeople here it's mind-blowing you know it's such a small place, you know. It is, yeah, yeah. It's a you know UK small, I guess, uh, island even smaller. I, I think what I find just quite amazing is that the journey that you've gone from not str- yeah struggling but not not enjoying school of being yeah. very physical, hands on, then not almost by chance, but you know, sort of like having an interest in art, but then you know, wanting to get beat more in the sports side of things, but just having this niggle of like, right, no, no, we're going to do art, going to do art, going to do art, and then ended up doing something that's 
both creative and also hands-on and very physical at the same time and landing in that in that role at the foundry uh, yeah. and to then go now traveling traveling across the country doing something that's also very creative and very physical but in a very different way i don't know yeah. it's just it's, it's been lucky it's, it's all, all my all my my uncles uh, they were all really good tradesmen back home so i'd always admired tradesmen um so you know kind of having this thing for me is perfect because it's like that hybrid between you know the kind of arty kind of side of stuff the more artisan kind of approach but at the same time it's you know it's a trade and it just it just meets perfectly in the middle for me and and what i would say is like if there's if there's young people like listening to this and and you you know you you want to do something like that we are crying out for people to get into the trade because um we just we, we struggle to get like we struggle to get you know talented young people and like you know especially you know for creative people when like they, they have an outlook of it can be very frightening you know when you're mm. when you choose to go down that, that that creative route you know there's an option out there um if you're if you're willing to roll your sleeves up get dirty and, and get stuck in you know there's a, a great a great opportunity there why do you think it is that there's such a hard time getting people interested in that sort of skill? Is it because people want to do something, but like they 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 don't recognise it as an opportunity for them, or do no, they? I think I think people just don't know what it is. I mean, like people see it, but they're like you know, like you'd be amazed if you start looking up. You know, like like that's what we always say to people: like look up. Like when you're when you bring your, your eyes above the first floor kind of like signage of the shops or whatever, you'd be amazed in the architectural details that are just completely surrounding our lives, you know. But people just don't seem to be aware of it. And and I think that's one side of it. I think the other side of it is it takes like a it takes like a mix of skills because it's a wet trade, but at the same time, so you've got to be good with like wet materials like clay um uh, plaster you know wax that kind of stuff but at the same time you have to have the mind that we'll cut like measurements and you know plot stuff out you know so it's like a it's a weird mix because normally if you're kind of like good at the kind of wet trades you might like not be so great at the you know the more kind of like you know stuff like carpentry or joinery type stuff and vice versa so finding people where those skills like cross over isn't isn't all that common um and then the other side, the side of it is it takes a long time to get good at it okay like you know you can get like you can get to a point where like you can be adequate like you know in a workshop or you can be adequate out in sight and you can be good at like you know one portion of it but to actually get the whole thing it's, as i was saying it's like a lifetime so people drop out of it for whatever reason or you know just aren't necessarily cut out for it because it takes a, a rare kind of skill set really yeah but i guess there's uh you know apprenticeships and there the, there are routes into yeah, it yeah i mean there, there are i mean like you know as i said like i started out with in the fiber thing with uh hales and how and like i really recommend them it's a great place to, to to learn your trade and they're good people so it is out there like it's just it just seems to not be just some people's kind of map you know like this okay. is, like you know people just don't it's one of those jobs people don't really know about it you know plus one of the things that can be a bit off-putting as well is until you kind of get to let's say further down the line with it you can end up you know spending a lot of time on the road and that doesn't suit people you know like it can be a real challenging thing like for me i loved it because i've always been so restless you know i've all like i've really really struggled i'm getting better at it i'm starting to slow down now i'm actually finding it much easier to be in the same place for a bit you know but back then i couldn't i couldn't handle being in the same spot i needed to be constantly moving and constantly kind of like look, exploring weird places and stuff so it only took 40 years tony but you're you finally <laughs> yeah 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 well it's about i mean when you think of it it's like it's like it's like 20 years now of doing all sorts of mad skullduggery you know to, to get to this point like but yeah now it's paid off and i enjoy it that's the most important thing i love it i like i really i'm happy in my work so it's not a drag for me like every day i go in i'm excited to learn yeah you, it's it's exciting work and i guess the people around you make a big difference as well like oh can... for sure and then you have moments where you know you'll cut like a panel out of a wall and you'll find like an empty bottle of martel brandy from like 1870 or You'll, you'll see where the people that were there before you, like you, you'll find newspapers like from, you know, way back, like, you know, porno mags, infamously. One of the guys cut through a panel and somebody like, I think it was the last time that panel had been opened. I think it was like the 1800s, but it was uh, someone had written, ye be not the first. 
it's just like I, I just love stuff like that you know or like you, you look down all of a sudden you can see where somebody just like sat and had their lunch like you know 150 years before yeah and sealed it up and it's all that kind of stuff cigarette packets and like little notes and all sorts of bizarre stuff yeah yeah I, uh, when we I replaced all the floorboards in my living room uh, when i pulled them all up i found some I think it was like an empty can of Pepsi, and it was like the '60s yeah. branding on the can, yeah. and I was like, "What?" I, you know, was, yeah. I'm glad it was. I'm glad, to be honest, I'm glad we found a can from the '60s because I thought all these floorboards were original from like 120 years ago. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at least someone's had some work in this house in the last years. <laughs> yeah, in the last century. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a good story. This is like, uh, like I don't know if you're for time, but I could, you know, possibly wrap it up with this one if you wanted. But. Uh, we did a, a job up in Blackpool in the Empress Ballroom, which is the second biggest dance floor, sprung dance floor in Europe. It's a beautiful building. It's like incredibly opulent place. But what happened was this huge dome, uh, sorry, um, it was like a, a vaulted ceiling with these huge coffered vaults had fallen in the middle of the night and landed in the middle of the dance floor. And thank God, like there was no one there when it happened because it would absolutely have killed people. It would have been really bad. So over four months, what we did was we had to systematically cut holes in the ceiling, crawl in behind, wire the whole thing up, re-secure everything so nothing, if it did fall, it would be suspended on wires or it was, you know, completely restored. But it came to the, the Easter uh, bank holiday weekend and we were all keen to, you know, to get out of there basically. But we were like, look, we'll do one more panel before we go. So we cut through this panel, climb inside, and one of the guys found a newspaper, right, from, I think it was like, oh, I don't know what it was, it's like, like yeah, late 1800s. But when we opened up the newspaper, it was from the Easter bank holiday weekend, 140 <laughs> years before. No yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> if you go on my Instagram, you'll be, able to, you'll be able to see some of the photographs of it. But it's like, that was really, that, that, that made my, the hair on my arm stand up. It was like yeah. the king of Spain had been for a visit and all this crazy stuff. Wow. That's, yeah, yeah proper history in, yeah, in yeah. your hands. Almost to the day, you know what I mean? It's like the Easter bank holiday weekend, like 140 years or so. <laughs> it really spun me out. I was like, it's just too much. <laughs> oh, man. It's yeah. been an absolute pleasure. One final thing before we, uh, before we wrap it up, Tony. Um, if you could go back and do it all over again, is there anything you would do differently? And would you have liked to end it up anywhere else? Well, I mean, I've, but I don't have any regrets, but I think I would have been a little bit more gentler on myself and maybe, maybe sometimes the people around me because I was so focused on what I was doing. I had this like real intense like need to do what I was doing that sometimes I guess, you know, that was kind of hard to live with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do, you know, I do, I, I really appreciate the patience that my, my friends and family have given me to allow me kind of go and do this thing. Um, but no, I, I absolutely love what I'm doing this life. It's lifelong. I mean, like when people start talking about retiring and stuff like that, I'm like, I'm not going to ever retire. Like, <laughs> like I'll still be shuffling around like, you know, maybe even if, even if it's like two days a week or something like that, I'll, I'll want to be involved right until I can. You know, I, it's my life's work. I love it. That's so good to hear. Because, yeah, pretty much everyone I asked that question to has always said, you know, pretty, pretty similar thing. But it's always interesting to hear that, like, the attitude of not having any regrets about what they've done and that, that people are happy with how they've ended up through the journeys that they've been on uh, to get to to get the way they are right now. Yeah, well, it's a funny thing. Like I've had this conversation before, and some people think it's got to do with bravery, but what it was was for me that the idea of not doing it was so uncomfortable to me that I had to do it. Do you know what I mean? It was like I couldn't, I couldn't see in my mind's eye be doing something else. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, like, I know I've had a varied career, but it was all got to do with, like, creative manufacturing and learning, like, you know, and, and like, you know, historical kind of stuff. And that was it. It was very uncomfortable. It forced me to to keep going, you know. Oh, amazing. Cheers. Thank you so much, Tony, oh, pleasure, for man. having pleasure. a chat. Hopefully this has been, uh, yeah, hopefully you've enjoyed having a chat as much as I've enjoyed listening. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's been great. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Ah, no worries at all, man. Right, I'll catch up with you soon, Tony. Cheers. All the best, man.
Thanks so much for listening to episode 6. If you've listened all the way through the episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review, maybe even sharing it with your friends. If you've got a story you would like to tell, feel free to get in touch. The email address is in the episode description, along with the links to some of the things we spoke about in the podcast today. I'll be back with another episode Monday next week, so hopefully you'll be hearing again soon. Bye!